From high atop Fibush Media World Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it's the Top of the Tower podcast. I'm Scott Fibush. The podcast this week is brought to you by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. We will get right into the meat of the podcast this week because uh, it's a little longer one than usual, but I think you'll find it worth it. When I found out that Phil Rito was going to be retiring next year from the helm of WGBH Radio in Boston, I knew immediately that I wanted to get him on the podcast. Phil is an unusual sort of manager because he has worked, as you will hear, all over the radio industry in a whole variety of roles, from commercial DJ to commercial programmer to public radio programmer uh, in New York, in Chicago, in Boston, Really interesting set of experiences, and of course, he's running a really interesting public radio operation in Boston. WGBH doesn't sound like a lot of other public radio stations. There's a lot of commercial radio DNA in there. You will hear Phil explain why, but rather than hear me talk about it, let's get right into our interview with Phil Rito. I want to start off first, obviously, uh, by asking you about the timing right now of of your decision over the long term. Uh, to step down from your post at GBH. You know, it's hard to believe when I think about the word retirement. I, I, I try to avoid using it because I don't intend to, to not work. I, I, uh, uh, it's just that this uh, particular uh, job and what I've been doing for the last 40-plus years requires so much of my time. And I've always loved everything about what I uh, do, but I love a lot of other things too, and I just I I I don't know whether this is sort of an existential awareness of my mortality, but I just I realize that I want to do some other things uh, before I can't, and uh, so that's sort of what precipitated it. And also there was a certain uh, symmetry to ten eleven years that it's the longest I've ever been at a single broadcast facility. Um, which I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's one of those things that you sort of become aware of. And then the last thing is, I guess, uh, to especially to my friends, uh, you know, I had a fairly serious health situation about a year, a little over a year ago now, and it does make you a little bit more um, uh, aware of of the fact that you're not going to be here forever. There's a as a wonder, I mean, this again sort of sounds a little more philosophical than we probably ought to go. But um, I used to think the definition of happiness in life was that not not to live your your life as if it was your last day, but to believe that you have infinite days ahead of you that 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 you could always plan for things because you had plenty of time. And I think when you're faced with um, a serious health situation that happily I feel I've passed. Um, you do uh, recognize that there is going to be a finite aspect to this, and you better get on with it. So all that being said, it just felt like the right time. And uh, But I'm not going to stop working. I have a lot of other things I want to try to accomplish. So let's talk a little bit about what you have accomplished at WGBH over these last few years. I, I point frequently to what you've done there uh, as being, if not unique, then at least very rare in the public radio landscape, uh, because when I turn on GBH, and especially in the middays when uh, when when Marjorie and, and Jim are on, you know what I hear sounds very unlike anything. You know, first of all, that I would have recognized listening to GBH when I was in the market twenty some years ago, and and very unlike what I think the conventional stereotype still is of what public radio is supposed to sound like. Talk, talk a little bit about the the philosophy behind that, and and how you've made that work. Well, I guess um, uh, uh, two two things um, initially. W- one was that this market has a rich history, both with um, commercial stations and I would argue even with print, that um, news has, has driven a, a great deal of appetite in this town for many, many years. And uh, because of the intellectual capital that is here, the um, educational sort of ground zero that this place represents, there was always a belief that there was probably a a, a larger audience for serious uh, journalism and for the the what I like to consider to be sort of the intellectually 
curious but more in-depth kind of pursuit of information than had been um, fully realized by BUR. And I just want to make this very clear. They are a fantastic station. They were and they remain. But we believed that there was an um, opportunity for uh, what really is a, a non-zero-sum uh, game. And, and by putting something on that had a slightly different flavor to it but was pursuing it uh, with the same rigor, um, that there was a, a real chance to grow the audience. And that's kind of what we set out to do, and it's what we, um, I'm happy to report we've been able to do. And the other is that I believe very much in personality uh, bonding between audiences and individuals. And I think that public media for many, many years was much more about um, topics and issues and sort of approaches. It was a very producer-centric kind of um, medium, and it's and and that's a strength. So what we were hoping we could do is kind of blend the two and make it a little bit more locally focused, a little more personality-based, and yet still try to come at uh, topics and issues um, that make you think, that um, you feel like you haven't wasted your time. I say to many um, new employees um, when they join us, I ask them sort of this provocative question of what, what is it that you think we do? And, you know, many of them will answer properly and probably predictably that, you know, we, we make radio shows or we do the news or we cover stories or whatever it is. And all of that is true. But what we really do is we take people's time and we make it more valuable. That, that, that's what we do. And we try to do anyway. And, uh, and I think that they, they, they sort of look at me and, and we talk about that because we're in a, a, a time, I think, in our history where uh, we all are suffering time poverty issues. And so making judgments about where you want to spend any of it um, has uh, increased the value propositions. Um, that whole conversation has to be much more uh, seriously taken by those of us who are providing in this sort of broadcast environment um, a, uh, a a series of opportunities for them to choose from. So uh, long answer, I guess, to your question, but I think we set out to be something that wouldn't waste your time, would be entertaining at the same time being informative, and would be a place that you would want to come back to on a regular basis. And it's something, at least to my ear, that that has the DNA of a lot of what's come before it. On the commercial side of the dial, you obviously were involved at Greater Media with, with FM Talk on 96.9 with some of the same voices that you've got now at GBH. Uh, there, you know, there are voices that have been heard on WRKO back when that was still the talk station mm-hmm. in town. How does, how does that factor into it uh, in, in doing public radio in 2019? Well, I think that there's, um, you know, it still comes back to people who ask me the difference between public and commercial, and I've done both now um, for, for a fairly long time, both. Commercial radio for many years was doing outstanding work. And, uh, I mean, you you were at one of the all-time great call letters at WBZ. I've been very lucky over the years to have worked with some of the um, outstanding news people and talk hosts um, that were all of uh, commercial uh, beginnings. And uh, so I, I think that what we've tried to do is to say it isn't, uh, it isn't the delineation of whether they sound like a commercial station. It's to say, are they good? And I think when they were doing commercial, they were good. And so we brought them to public radio where I think they're good. So I think that, you know, it's the, this, 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 um, objective to to put on compelling uh, content that should drive the consideration, not whether they were commercial or, or, or this somewhat derogatory manner in which people look at commercial in comparison to public. I think what has changed is the is is the and for so many different reasons, um, 
the approach that commercial is now sort of forced to take, which is uh, a lot less depth and uh, and and economically uh, considered in a in a in a much different way than it was twenty, thirty, and forty years ago, um, has now opened up a lane that uh, public media is uniquely positioned to be able to fill. Um, years ago, when I was in Chicago and I was running a music station, we used we did a public affairs show called Let's Read, and it was a literacy based program that we um, that was started by our news director, and it evolved into a partnership with the Chicago Public Libraries, and it allowed kids to wake up on a Sunday morning and be read to, and the intention was to promote it at libraries to say, this is the book we're going to read on Sunday. Bring it home. Read it with your parents or your grandmother or your friends. Well, again, this is a music station, a, a you know contemporary music station. We had more listeners listening to that show than WBEZ, the public radio station. Now, this is 25 years ago or so. But the point is that kind of a show would never exist today. No, I can't imagine that at all. Yeah, No, no, no that never. Would be, and, that would be inconceivable. And it's too bad because th- that contribution to the airwaves, to people's ability to share something, um, was multiplied by 10,000 commercial radio stations at that time. We all had obligations to our license that allowed for that kind of creativity to meet a need. You know, we can argue about regulatory um, uh, uh, impositions and, and at another time. But the point was that all of us were at the same sort of disadvantage or advantage. And uh, we each approached it differently because we all had different formats and we all had different target audiences. And as a result of that, we had the the multiplier effect of an idea being uh, being doled out over many, many different um, uh, executions. And I think that's been a real unfortunate uh, byproduct of, of what's happened in the last 20, 25 years. The good news is public media has picked up on it, and I think it's what's opened up the lanes a little bit more for stations like GVH to come in and have slightly different take on the approach um, to be a little bit more uh, personality-leaning, to be a little looser, to use humor more. Um, all of those things, I think, still fit the basic premise that we want to take people's time and make it more valuable to them. So you mentioned 10,000 commercial radio stations all doing this back in the day, and I think you could argue that if there were 10,000 radio stations back then, you know, now you're competing not only with WBUR and WBZ and WRKO locally, but you're competing for that valuable attention with, you know, how many tens of thousands of other people who are creating audio content now. And, of course, you now uh, have become a pretty sizable shop uh, in, in your own right in terms of, of producing podcast content and producing digital content. What do you see when you look at this new world that is that is so different from from what we had when you were in Chicago and when I was at BZ? I, I think it's fantastic. I, I, I have um, never been more excited about audio. And uh, I think it's uh, made all of us better. I think that we've all had to compete differently. Uh, one of the great things about competition is that it um, often is the impetus to innovations um, I think if nothing else, it makes your own performance elevated because you're aware that there's somebody else trying to uh, be in that space. Um, but probably the biggest thing about it is there's an enthusiasm around content and an enthusiasm that is um, born primarily by the presenters of this content that I don't think I've seen since the um, – Earlier days of FM, uh, when the people who were running, I mean, my first job running a, an FM station down on Cape Cod that, um, you know, the guy, gave, the, the, the owner of the, of the company did not know what to do with an FM <laughs> signal. 
And I really do believe that I had long hair and was young. He figured I did. And there's no way I would have ever had that job uh, if it had just been AM. And I would I would have had to probably spend five to ten years bumping around up and down the dial before I would have had a position like I was presented right out of college. And I think a lot of that dynamic is occurring today with podcasting and and really with all the technology that's allowing people, um, young and old, to pursue the interests that they have and present them very professionally, I, I would add. Uh, and with this thing, this spark that I think is what captures audiences, and that is an authenticity and an enthusiasm. And those two things are the bedrock of radio. They are the things that I still think make good broadcasts. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a much more cluttered world, and it's creating a difficulty for a lot of people to decide what it is that they're going to listen to. And I think at times overwhelming almost, and I think it's why you want to become one of the brands that they kind of go to to see if, well, I can't figure out too many things for me to listen to. Let me go to my old standby. Um, I think it puts pressure on those of us who think of perhaps us being the old standby to be good, to be really good. And I think the other thing, and I, it's kind of a shout out to sports radio, but I think one of the greatest things that's come along is FM Sports Talk because it has um, localized the interest and enthusiasm around clearly a passion that uh, that this market in particular, but I would argue in the this country, um, that that allows younger people to find broadcast radio um, in a way that if it had only been talk and news. Um, may not have happened. So, so this again is, you know, why I get excited when I think about, you know, what's out there and these young people who are coming up with skill sets, um, editing and and even interviewing. Um, they're listening to other people. Some of them are good. Some are not. Um, they're making judgments um, that I used to as a listener when I was a teenager and even earlier than that that made me want to get into radio in the first place. I think we're seeing a a whole new generation of content creators and people who love audio. Um, and I think it's terrific. How do you balance that from a management perspective? I mean, obviously you have two linear radio streams in the form of 89.7 and, and then the classical station WCRB, where you still have an impetus to, to want to keep people tuned in that way and to keep ratings high. And yet at the same time, you know, you've got the whole PRI, PRX operation yeah. that, that you've bet big on there. How do you how do you balance that between being a local radio station, being a national production house, and, and now being such a digital force as well? Yeah, well, it's not easy. I, I think there are two things that, I, that come to mind. First and foremost is local, which to me is what local radio's strength is really local. Local has um, a resonance. People can only live in one place at the same time, and I think that's a physics reality that's not going to change uh, ever. So people, especially as they grow up and have a family and start uh, recognizing that the impact that they can probably have to the greatest degree is going to be the space that they occupy most often, and that is local. And as a result of that, there is going to be a curiosity um, to an extreme at the local level. So those of us who are invested heavily in exploring that, I think, are going to be around for a long time because that's never going to go away. And, yeah, the technology may adjust, but people still want to know what's going on. And as a result of that, there are levels of of of. Uh, of, of means to tell those stories. Some are observational and opinion-based, and there's not a whole lot of need for boots on the ground and reporting and all that. And then there's the second degree, which I think is the one we've most invested in, and that really is to dig deep into issues that people may only have a superficial awareness of, but to which there is a great uh, amount of information that needs to be sort of uncovered and um, those two areas, I think, are 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 
are very different. And the broadcast side is what allows us to kind of pay for the um, uh, the depth and, the you know, I say the boots on the ground. But the reporters, the people who are actually doing the work that may end up as a single story on the air or on our website, but clearly uh, is the result of a lot of work and a lot of editing and a lot of uh, sort of guidance that is professional. Um, and then there's the the, the level of uh, simply communicating enthusiastically, um, either storytelling or uh, shared experiences or um, a, a deeper dive into a very narrow topic that I feel broadcast is still not the right venue for, but for which now there are these uh, channels that people are able to tap into. And by having the opportunity to work with all of those different channels, as we are lucky enough to hear, we can see the intersections. And where those intersections occur, we can we can pull them out and we can highlight them for people. And, you know, in the old days, that might have been called cross-promotion. But to me, it's not really cross-promotion as it is cross-awareness so that when we have these opportunities to say to somebody, you know, we're doing um, a podcast called The Scrum, and every week we take on political – if you're really a junkie, a political junkie, you want to listen to this. But every once in a while, it's going to overlap with a story, whether it's Bill Weld taking on the president, that will allow us to leverage – that very narrow lane and put it on a broader lane that more and more people all of a sudden are curious about. We we have the ability to be that central location. And as long as we don't try to force feed it, um, I think we have, again, this tremendous opportunity to help people understand and to make their time more valuable by spending it with us. Well, and in that context, I think it's not at all coincidental that you look at the list of what the top podcasts are, and consistently, public radio products are, are right up there at or near the top. I mean, that's it's it's quite a billboard, right? Yeah, no, I mean it's amazing. And the other thing about it is that you know you talk about talent retention and other aspects of the job. Um, I think that that people make decisions about where they're going to work based on the other opportunities that may present themselves. And so, you know, this, this is both a challenge and an opportunity. Um, clearly, we can't do everything that everybody would like us to do. However, we're in a position that if there is something that makes sense to do, we are uh, in a position to maybe actually do it. And so this becomes part of the way that we hope to continue to attract talent um, and to leverage that talent when they're here so that we are able to present them to audiences that may never listen to us on the radio, but will be not only open, but perhaps reliant on uh, the fact that we can present the, these same ideas, maybe packaged slightly differently but to an entirely new um, generation of of listeners, and we we see the same thing happening on our on our TV side, where the way in which people are accessing content um, is just so dramatically different than it was even five even five years ago. I I, I remember when when I first got to um, back back to Boston in two thousand and six from New York. Um, and it sounds funny to say this, but the Internet really was kind of an afterthought uh, on many, many levels. Um, there was an awareness that we needed to be involved. I think there was a curiosity, especially about the delivery of, of, of audio streams. That had already happened. But people weren't quite sure who was listening, whether it was just the same kind of folks. And nobody was thinking about presenting things like uh, – the way podcasts have evolved, and now the way segments on TV are being presented, where there there's a, you know, arguably depending on the show, larger audiences online or for segments of shows online than for the uh, aggregate, uh, you know, production of the show in its entirety, 
And this is this, this is, is how I watch Beat the Press on Fridays from WGBH well, TV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. and and it's true for 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 audio. And and I think that uh, you know one of the things that we're seeing more and more is that people are using YouTube as a as a, a grazing opportunity when in the past they might have just been clicking around on their on their television and stopping on an old movie or on a rerun or something. Uh, now people are saying, gee, I'm interested in, you know, old watches and they go to a YouTube video and they're all of a sudden they're down a rabbit hole two and a half hours and they're watching a, a wide variety of, of qualities. Some of it is, is, you know, really amateur and some of it is highly, highly produced and it's often extremely interesting if you are, that into whatever the subject is that you are uh, pursuing. So th- this and this is taking people's time up. And by the way, that is making their time more valuable. So we are in this different competitive environment for that 24 hours of which um, so much of it is accounted for. Arguably, it's overscheduled, maybe. Um, and then, you know, then you get into all the technology that's changed um, smart speakers didn't exist three years ago, um, and uh, I think certainly what we've seen in cars, which uh, you know the dashboard is getting more and more complicated. The, the the happy news is that still the most dominant thing in a car from an audio standpoint is 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 broadcast radio, and the thing that dealers car dealers are saying is it's the one thing you can't take out of the car. So that's all good. However. Um, those of us who are still worried about people listening to radio in other venues, uh, the greatest thing that's happened is the smart speaker. And I think that that's only going to continue to evolve. And I think I can certainly envision a, a world five, ten years from now that when you get home, you know, you're going to be welcomed by, you know, Alexa or somebody and says, you know, do you want to watch something? Want to call somebody? Do you want to know anything? And uh, and and. We're already seeing that in uh, in in a lot of the research that we're doing that people are using it uh, as a companion, and that I think is one of the strengths that radio has always uh, been. It is a companion, and we want to be in that business. And I guess from your point of view, it's irrelevant whether somebody's listening over a smart speaker. Or over 89.7, as long as they're listening and they register in the ratings and hopefully pick up the phone at Pledge Drive time and, and make a call, right? Well, I think that's probably the bigger challenge. Um, I, don't, I don't think we do have a real handle on all the ways people are accessing us. And I mean that sort of in aggregate. Um, I think Nielsen's aware of that. I think certainly um, sponsors are aware of that. And I think that as business models are being debated. Um, I think this is going to be the area that probably still needs the most work. Um, And, you know, you get into a bit of the sort of um, benign uh, neglect aspect of it. Um, We certainly know in competing with the commercial guys that there are um, big, major investments being made in, in digital distribution, I, I think that there's still a lot of discussion and debate as to how to best represent the way people are accessing that technology. Um, there is a currency exchange that's present and people are kind of comfortable with that's got to change going forward. Um, rating points and all those things that have been sort of baked in to the way business has been done uh, is all being changed. Paywalls are becoming a larger and larger factor, even for um, even for video and audio companies. And I think that, you know, again, I come back to the public media uh, model, which is being co-opted, or at least um, uh, parts of it are, um, by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Boston Globe. And you know, they're all trying to look at the sort of three-legged chair of our business model and seeing how they can replicate it. But, you know, truth be told, and you know this, we, we're we not behind a paywall. Yes, we ask for financial contributions from the listeners or the viewers, but we don't shut it off if you don't participate financially. And I think that's a great strength for us, and I also think it's one of the big impetuses that we use to 
you know, motivate our staffs and to remind people that we, we may be the last, you know, high-quality journalistic enterprise in the United States that you don't have to pay for. That's one of my regular pledge drive pitches, too, here in Rochester. There you go. Uh, there you go. At WXXI, 454-6300. Make that call right now. So <laughs> in that in that public radio universe, I mean, obviously you're not unique now either in, in putting that content out there. And now you're competing not only locally against WBUR, as unusual as that is, but you're really sort of competing then on a national level against big players that very prominently include one of your former employers, WNYC in New York, which has, I mean, talk about an operation that has that has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. That's unrecognizable, I think, from when you were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they've done a great job. They made a major investment, both uh, strategically and financially. Um, I, I still think, though, uh, you know, content, content, the old adage that you know content is king clearly is true there I wish I could give proper attribution to this next uh line, but if content is king, distribution is king kong um i I think that distribution often is the byproduct of a brand that people are aware of. And WMYC leveraged an awareness of their public media um, uh, 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 stature. And I think that there still is this moment where brands that are generally market-wide aware have an edge in at least getting their content um, and acquiring content that we need to take advantage of. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that has – uh, made it a favorable decision to uh, GBH to help arrange the PRI PRX situation uh, because clearly brands still matter. People are making uh, decisions about how they're going to pick the places that they're going to turn to or look for things. Everybody is looking for the sort of Netflix of podcasting. Um, many have tried. There are a number of platforms that, um, you know, that are that are trying to put together some sort of algorithmic way to help you navigate the tens and what is it, hundreds now, hundreds of thousands of of content uh, 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 offerings that are made available every week. So, you know, I I do think that we're at a, a point where it's not just about competition, it's about great ideas. And then if you are lucky enough, as we are, to still have a sizable broadcast audience, um, we want to try to take advantage of that. We want to try to leverage that digitally uh, to audiences that are only vaguely aware of us, don't have a real relationship with us, but somehow have heard of us um, uh, while we still can. And, and that will end at some point, uh, I don't know if it's going to be 10 or 20 years from now, there'll always be a need for broadcast, I believe. Um, but to your point about, you know, the way in which they access it, uh, I, you know, we're, we're going to see 5G come into play pretty soon. And I think that's going to be a game changer. So there are lots of things that are evolving that while we still have, relatively speaking, uh, a bigger share of voice than we may ever have um, to to figure out how to use that to our to our advantage. It's incredible, isn't it? You can have a, a huge video board overlooking the Mass Pike day in and day out, and yet still have people driving by who don't know who you are. Yeah, well, I mean that <laughs> that actually doesn't surprise. Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me. Boston drivers paying attention to things. <laughs> I want to ask as as part of that, you know, sort of of tension between different entities figuring out their new roles what does what does the role of npr vis-a-vis -vis local stations look like to you going forward when everybody's kind of out there in that same space whether they're national or local of hey we've got this cool stuff we produced we want your ears well it's a great question uh, it's been the topic of a lot of internal discussions within public media and and I think NPR would be the first to admit it. They they understand that the value of 
um, NPR as a brand is this is this amazing collaboration between the local stations. Remember, NPR does not have a tower, so it's 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 its bedrock success as a brand is on the backs of the local stations. In addition to that, and somewhat different than the PBS model, is that the radio stations have increasingly um, uh, placed the local news into a bigger framework with the national news to the degree that we now have this really, I think, a, a best, certainly in the last 10 or 15, 20 years, uh, integration, this blend between national and and local, and local investment has risen, as we earlier mentioned, that, that local is becoming increasingly uh, valuable um, to listeners. So the standard, the professionalism, the, the quality has, has risen as well. So we have, uh, right now, we're at a, a wonderful place on the broadcast side, I think. Where the challenges lie is that because uh, the NPR brand has grown so well and the local NPR brands have grown so well that now we're in this uh, this this um, new development stage on the technical side and and clearly it's on uh, the uh, both digital website and the audio podcasting side where I think we are uh, more in competitive posture than we've probably ever been before. And I don't think we've solved this yet. Um, there's there's a, a, a body of evidence that indicates that there are a, a number of folks, especially younger folks, who have accessed NPR only through uh, digital and don't really have a relationship with the local stations. And so how might we uh, collectively come up with a strategy that would allow us to raise money to help support this in these other on these other channels and i think you know we've not figured this out and i think if you talk to npr they'd admit that we have not figured this out and we're in discussions and dialogue with them now about coming up with ways to experiment for this uh, it's clearly important to the local stations that we not be cut out of this in any way shape or form it is a membership organization um and so we are npr and as a result of that, there there's a lot of governance conversations about what NPR can do independent of the stations and what the stations need from NPR. Um, so it's a – I mean, that's a whole separate podcast, but I think Indeed. it's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question, and, and I think that there's good – the one thing I'll say about it, having been on and off at least for almost 20 years now working at both local stations and dealing with NPR – I don't think that it's ever been a better relationship between the senior management at NPR and the and the stations. Um, there are tensions because um, I think they're they're positive, competitively valuable um, tensions because we're doing well, and th that that's a good thing. That's a creative tension, and I think from that come better ideas and better solutions. It's far better than being in sort of a descendant position when people are struggling and anything seems like a lifeline, um, we're in the opposite. So we're looking ahead to how does technology help us do a better job covering uh, the news? How, how do we pool our resources in a way that expands what's been a very good blend or an improving blend in our journalism? And I also think that at the local level, clearly, better and better work is being done. Are there ways that we can leverage the sort of, I call it the neural network that exists of almost 2,000 journalists working in public radio? How do we connect one another in a way that's better um, for the system overall and for listeners um, on all the platforms, not just broadcast? And these are very complicated, very tricky waters to navigate and um and you know clearly we're we're trying a lot of different ideas not not any of them are you know necessarily the answer but i think collectively they're pointing us at least in the right direction so you mentioned off the beginning that you know you've got this unusual situation of having another local presence that's also very big 
in town. And, of course, they also now are, are in the midst of trying to put new leadership in place. You've got, uh, what, about another year before you formally step down yeah. at GBH. What do you – how do you kind of see the next year playing out for you and and – how would you like to see that dynamic play out with, with the two big players there in town? Well, I think that clearly there's an advantage to people knowing that there is an opportunity at GVH. At the same time, there's an opportunity across the street because, um, you know, there are there are going to be, I think, a lot of people interested in, in Boston. It's a great uh, market. Um, so, so one of the advantages, I think, of my – um, giving uh, a longer lead notice is that now those who are potential candidates um, have more to choose from. Um, I guess what I'd like to see, because cer- certainly I'm not going to pick my successor, um, but I've been asked to be involved, which I both am honored and flattered to be part of. Um, what I hope is that um, whoever they bring in, um, that I have a little bit of overlap uh, time, um, either before or after, so that um, I'm able to provide, just just as we try to do on our programming, uh, a little depth and context. Um, we were uh, literally did not have a newsroom ten years ago. We 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 everything that we've built we've built over the last eight to ten years. And there are stories around that that are sort of embedded in now the new DNA of what um, the the station and the and the news department represent. And I I believe it's important to know where we came from in order to help guide where it's going. And it can be rejected completely, but I would hope that whoever the new leader is will at least take the time to understand that history and. In my mind, some of it is nostalgically um, fun to talk about, and some of it is instructionally helpful to have explained because as people come in today, the expectation is far different than what we kind of cobbled together in 2009 and 10 and 11 and even 12 Um that I think is valuable for people to know and understand. And I look around the newsroom today, and maybe there are a dozen uh, who remember when we had absolutely nothing and um, appreciate what we are at today. But but I think it's important that people know where we were, um, you know, as recently as seven years ago, six years ago even. So and How, how so many I, of that, them, that, how many of them have ever heard of Robert J. Lertzema? Well, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I have that was, to tell you, that was, I was the GBH a, I remember competing against. Not that it was. Well, any it's kind funny of you say that because I was at a meeting uh, not too long ago when you know they see your name tag, and uh, you know it, it speaks to the power of personality. Um, that's the first thing they they said is oh, Robert J. And I, I think that you know I I've been very lucky. I've worked at some tremendous radio stations, and I've worked for places that have been around for a long time. I worked early in my career at KLIF in Dallas, which is a legendary old top 40 station from the 50s and 60s. I worked at WMYC, which started in the 1920s. I was lucky enough to work at ROR and RKO, and I was lucky enough to work at um, uh, 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 some really terrific places that honored their past. And I I feel, you know, especially at a, a station like this, which is a living, breathing, you know, sort of permanent record of of a place um, that may have addressed it differently over the decades. Um, but it's so important to recognize its past and understand what led one thing to the next and, and now to where we're going um, there's a lot of temporal evaluations that go on today, um, not just in the media business, but in general. We don't have enough time to, to learn about things, and we don't take the time to learn about things. And so my hope is in the transition, um, I can share some of my enthusiasm for the fact that we built something out of almost nothing. And I hope whoever takes over is going to take what we've done 
and 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 not just move it to the next level, which everybody says, but to evaluate it based on what it was and where it might be able to go. Uh, and it may be very different. It may it may pivot differently. It will certainly recognize um, the technology in a way that we we couldn't have ten years ago. Um, so yeah, that that's my hope. Whoever he or she is would be curious enough to find out. So what was, so what happened? So why did you decide to do this? Indeed. Well, hopefully we've answered some of those questions in our conversation. Once, once that person takes over, what's, what's on the agenda for you? More painting, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. It's a funny thing because people tease me about that, but I actually, um, there are a number of things that I want to get to that I don't have a chance to do. Some of them are more on the creative side. But but I also love working on strategic planning and things like that. So I, I am hopeful that there will be uh, some projects that people would be willing to get my input on. I, I've had a couple of people suggest that they might ask me for some thoughts about things that they're considering, and I would love to do that. Um, one other thing that's kind of interesting that as a result of my job, I'm not able to speak to any public policy people about anything because it would compromise the newsroom and the integrity of our journalism. And so there are things that I've been sort of on the sideline about that I would very much like to um, at least opine about. And um, and I don't mean that in a broadcast sense. I mean that more mm-hmm. as a member of a community. And those are things that I'm kind of excited about being able to do. You forget sometimes when you're in the media that you are an observer. Uh, and in some regards, that observation can lead to uh, providing information to other people, and they are the ones who end up acting on it. That you know, We do not advocate. We simply put uh, things out there, and we hope that there are people who are in a position to make better judgments, better, better decisions, and, um, and, and that's our contribution. But when I'm no longer responsible for that kind of an organization – I get a chance to participate a little bit more, and I'm kind of looking forward to doing that. Exciting. There are whole pieces of your career we haven't even touched on WLTW. And, uh, I, I, can I just say something about that? Because I look, I look back, and I, um, I don't know if other people in the business are like this, but you, know, you think about what, what are you proud of. And that station, when I was part of the team that launched it in 1984 – I am so proud that when I before I left it, it had achieved the highest average quarter hour in the country among adults, twenty five fifty four, um, which was I think in nineteen eighty five or six. And to this day, it is still the number one most listened to station in the United States. I can honestly tell you that I get such a kick knowing that that thing that did not exist. And I was the not only was I the first program director of it, I actually was the first voice that was ever heard on it. Um, that it is still number one in uh, in New York. Uh, I get a tremendous thrill out of that. So I've always wanted to say that. Uh, <laughs> and that, to, for, to, that to, format to, to has the broader changed, audience. So, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They did all the right things. They made all the changes. I mean, it's totally different than when I was there. But the point being that when it's it's a funny story, and I don't know who's listening to this, but there are probably some people who I worked with that are there. And Bill Figginshue, who was a mentor of mine and is just a great guy, and um, I remember when we were planning WLTW, and, and believe me, I got in on the late stages of the planning. They said that they would be happy. I mean, it was a country station before it went to LTW. They would be happy with a three-share. And this is in 1983, four. Um, and when we got to a four, and then it got to a five, and then it got to a six, and I think it's at a seven now. And with all of what's happened in the media landscape, um, I just chuckle when I think about that. We we would have been so happy to to just be in the twos. Um, in New York City, that uh, so I, so that's one of the things that I really look back with pride. And same with Chicago. In Chicago, when 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 we started in 1989 and 90, it was 14th, 15th in the market. And and uh, when I left, uh, we were number one 
2554. I mean, those things I, I'm really uh, proud of. But what mostly I'm proud of are the people who, you know, we got to work with. And I'm happy that many of them I've worked with multiple times. People at WMJX back in the day when we were doing news on that station, a lot of people forget that we built a pretty big, pretty good news department. There was a great newsroom there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had a great news department there. And so, some of those folks are now at BUR. Some of those folks are at NPR. Some of those people were at ABC. Um, and, you know, I think that it's a funny thing when you say the word retire, which I, you know, probably never uttered in my life. Um, you hear from people, you know, you hear I heard from you know Nancy Donnell and the fabulous sports babe, who is my sports person in the 70s. Um, wow. And and when you when you when you think back what i remember are the people and i go you know i i am so proud that i was able to have a career um in which i worked with all these amazing folks even the crazy stories and uh, i mean believe me you talk about it, you should do a podcast episode on wacky broadcast stories um and invite me back cuz i've got yeah, a absolutely. bunch of them. And uh, and I think back, it's the people, it's the individuals, and there's a lot of them were um, uh, tremendous talents. And I always try to string together what are the things that make a great radio personality. And I think it is this 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 ability to perform clearly, but it's this enthusiasm, this authentic enthusiasm for what it is that they do. And you can't teach it. Maybe you can coach around the edges, but in general, you got to identify them and let them go. And I think that's the thing I'm most proud of is that I've been lucky enough to be around a lot of those folks. And I've benefited tremendously as a result of their talent. I know we have not heard the last of you. Thank you so much for uh, for taking some time to talk with us. On top of the tower, we will, I'm sure, be talking with you again at some point. I like that idea right. of doing a, a Wacky Radio Stories podcast. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, I got a that, lot That would be a good one. <laughs> All Phil, right, thank Scott, you so thanks much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for what you do, too. We appreciate reading about it. And my thanks to Phil Rito for taking so much time to talk with us here on the Top of the Tower podcast. My thanks also to the WGBH engineering team for getting him in the studio in Boston to talk with us. We will be back next week with another Top of the Tower podcast. There's still more from the NAB show, more of the interviews we did on the floor there. You will hear from Shotgun Tom Kelly about what a DJ from San Diego and L.A. is doing on the floor of uh, what's primarily an engineering convention. And uh, hopefully a little follow-up also on that uh, topic that's drawing so much discussion right now, uh, this proposal for an all-digital AM system that's making its way through the FCC. We'll uh, get some follow-up on the podcast we did last month on that. So that is all coming up next week on the Top of the Tower podcast. And, of course, be sure to check back with us every Monday for Northeast Radio Watch uh, and on Fridays for Sight of the Week. We are uh, showing you a whole bunch of stuff from our trip last fall down to Georgia and Florida over there right now. Top of the Tower is brought to you by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Scott Feibusch.